That's a really upbeat passage of scripture you read for us, Katie. <laughs> Do you know what I'm preaching about today? I don't think I told many people. We, we even had a different title. I'm talking about grumbling and complaining. I was just thinking, it's a beautiful day outside and the Olympic Games are on television and I wonder how many of you thought, you know what I hope that I can go to church and hear a sermon about? I, I hope Pastor Greg will preach about grumbling and complaining. I almost didn't even tell you I was going to do it. Well, I guess I didn't. But I am telling you, I think this might be a very important message for each one of us to hear. I really think so. You know, for several reasons. One is, did you know this whole episode in Exodus of people experiencing God's salvation, giving, being given a promise that there's another land they're going to, but in between there is a wilderness. All the way through the New Testament and really our brothers and sisters throughout history have looked at this and said, well, that's, that's what our own salvation is like. God rescues us from our past, offers us forgiveness, frees us from our slavery, promises us that what he started in us he's going to complete and there is going to be a renewed, a remade heaven and earth with no pain and no sorrow and no death and so forth. But in between, there are some challenges. So as I look at, if that's true, and I think it is, if you look at that, then if we look back into the story of the uh, Exodus event, again and again and again, one of the issues they had to learn about was that they felt like complaining and grumbling. And I'm guessing if they did, there must be a time or two that you and I do as well. Now, the other, oh, I see a few no's, a few no's, but uh, let me, let me, one more thing. You know, Moses was a fantastic storyteller. And, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to do this, but in what he selected to put in, he could have left out these episodes of complaining and grumbling. But under God's inspiration and the wisdom that God gave him, again and again and again, he makes sure we know that one of the biggest issues that God's people had to deal with was this grumbling, complaining spirit. And if someone would say, well, they had reasons to complain, the New Testament will tell us, well, don't grumble and complain the way that they did. And the word that is just consistently used is for sort of a pattern of life where we just murmur under our breaths saying, why is this happening to me? It's a, it's a negative viewpoint in which we start complaining about everything else around us. And I am guessing if this is there in the Bible that often that it's something that we need to think about as we walk with the Lord uh, in our own lives. At least a dozen times we have recorded by Moses what they did was they grumbled and complained. And, and Moses, as you probably could tell, was concerned because they kept complaining about him. And he said, really, it is, it is the Lord who is leading us. And, and, the, and the pattern is always the same. Um, some difficulty comes. Some of them major, some of them minor. The people grumble and complain about Moses. Moses takes it to the Lord, and then the Lord is good with them. And I had Katie read just these three episodes in chapters 15 to 17 because we see three of them back to back to back. Grumble number one, they didn't like the taste of the water. Grumble number two, they didn't like the food they were eating. Grumble number three, they didn't have enough water. Now as I looked at those, I thought, all right, Lord, 
we need, I'm sure, to learn something about this. And, and the other thing, and I may be just absolutely um, out of touch with things, but I, I often think it's good to deal with issues when it's not really a problem in our church community. And I haven't been hearing much grumbling. Maybe you're grumbling, but you're not telling me about it. But, but I really feel like this is a good time for us to look at this so that we can see what God has to say to us when sometimes those things happen in our lives and we just become so negative and we feel like complaining and grumbling. So I'm, I'm going to do this so simply. Three questions. Why is it? And I'm, I'm going to be speaking to people uh, who have experienced God's salvation. So if you're just visiting and looking into it, at least you're going to see what we as Jesus followers wrestle with all the time. So for those of us who have experienced a God's great rescue, and we know how much he loves us, why is it that we grumble anyway? N- number two, why should we not grumble? But then, number three, this amazing part, why is it that God is consistently so good to grumbling people? There's going to be a real positive part of this message if you'll stick with me for a while, okay? Number one then, why is it that we grumble? And, and the basic, simple answer that I give is because it seems that we're built in such a way that for us, the now seems to trump everything. Now just think about these people. We've been reading about the Israelites in Egypt. In the past, very recent past, they had just experienced the power and the presence of God. They had seen the plagues that he had sent. They had seen the way that he had delivered them through a Red Sea. They had just sung magnificent songs about the Lord. They had in front of them the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They knew God was there. And all of this with the rescue had just happened a few weeks before. So in the past, they had known that God was there. They also had great promises for the future. God had told them, I have a better place to take you. Just trust me and, and walk with me. And in fact, you remember, they were carrying this bag of bones of their patriarch Joseph from centuries before. And you remember the reason for that. It's because God had given a promise. Sometimes people are going to wonder if I'm going to keep my promises, but these bones will show that I gave to you, Joseph, that your people someday would get out of slavery in Egypt and make it. So when they carried it, they had this evidence of the promise of God that they wouldn't stay in slavery forever. But still, almost immediately, when a difficulty comes, they grumble. Why? Now, you know, I have a group of people that I meet with on Tuesday, all of them younger than I am. And one of them who came this past week was Marilyn Travis. Uh, Marilyn is just a very recent grad from Marshall High School here in uh, Pasadena. She's headed out to Stanford this fall. And as I was asking this, she just gave a concise answer that changed the whole way I thought about the sermon. So I thought I'd put our resident theologian, Marilyn, a quote from her so you can look at it. Just think about this. Why do we grumble? It's because what's happening in the present, what's happening right now, seems to dominate everything else in our lives. We could have seen great things from God in the past, and have great promises uh, for the future, but we become obsessed with the now to the extent that we forget what God has done and what he has promised. I am just sure she is right. My guess is if the um, pathway to the promised land 
had been paved with uh, yellow brick. And on the left-hand side, there were meat markets with free meat. And on the right-hand side, there were fruit and vegetable markets that they could just whip. I doubt that they would have been complaining in the present tense. But that's not the way it was for them. And the life isn't that way for us either. So look at chapter 15, verse 22. So Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. And they went into the desert, the desert of Shur. And for three days, they traveled in the desert without water. All right, now this was not easy. So grumble number one that happens was about the quality of the water. Now there was water that would be there, but their palates after being in Egypt, they didn't like this bitter stuff that was there. So that was grumble number one. Uh, Grumble number three was um, a problem that they didn't have enough water. So they needed more. And then in the between was grumble number two, that they didn't like uh, the, the, the diet that God was given to them. He, they didn't like the menu that he had for them. It was, I call it, it was a beef about beef in, in chapter 16. Just seeing if any, well, not many of you are awake here. See, it wasn't that they didn't have any food. They still had their cattle. They still had some grain to offer sacrifices to God, but they had gotten tired of the food that they had. And they kept thinking about, oh man, if we only had right now what we might have had back there in Egypt. I'll tell you, I, I've read so many times something like this. It was one thing for Moses to get the Israelites out of Egypt. But it was a much harder thing for him to get Egypt out of the Israelites. See, it didn't take very long for them to forget all of the horrors and the hopelessness and futilities of their existences as slaves. When the present trials came, uh, they started thinking about, not all of that. They thought about, well, what was back there that maybe, maybe we, we could have had. Now, they could have thought about other things. They could have thought about the beatings that they experienced in Egypt. They could have thought about that awful episode in which countless numbers of their children had been slaughtered. They could have thought about the fact that there would have been no future for their families if they had stayed there. They could have thought about that. Or they could have gone the other side. They could have thought about the fact, that cloud, that fire that shows me God is here, and we have just experienced great things with God. He's taken us through tougher times than this. They could have thought about this. They could have started singing that song that we looked like last week, chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. They could have done that and lifted their hearts up to God. But no, no, no. Chapter 16, verses uh, 2 and 3. That really hits me. If only we had now. Remember Egypt where we sat around pots of meat and had all the food that we wanted. I'm quite sure that wasn't true. God God hadn't even... I mean, the, 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 the Pharaoh hadn't even given them enough straw for their bricks. You know he didn't say, Oh, I'll give you our best pots of stew back here. But you know what the way it is. Whenever we start getting a tough time here, we look back and almost idealize what was. Uh, a boyfriend has a new girlfriend, and he gets tired of her, and he says, Oh, I remember how great it was back there. She was so wonderful. Then why did you break up with her? You have to, to think. So, yeah, so this is where I think Marilyn was right on target. It's uh, when things are in the right here and now. And because we are people who want immediate gratification, 
when the difficulty comes, instead of us thinking back to what God has done and what he's promised and saying, I'll trust you, we begin to grumble. And I, don't you think that that so often is the case with us still as we walk with the Lord? I, I know it's true for new believers, but I continue to find it true for many of us who have walked with the Lord for a long, long time. For a new believer, you enter into this thing with Jesus, and even though Jesus so clearly would say, count the cost, there will be challenges ahead before I bring my work to completion. We get into it, and soon we think, it's, at one point we think it's going to be so much better, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and you get into it, and then you feel like you're, you're up to uh, your neck in sand. And it's just so hard, and we start thinking about, oh man, it was much more fun back then. Or sometimes we start thinking about all those things that we feel like we had to give up uh, to follow Jesus. Oh, I could have so much more fun with all of my friends in Vegas if I didn't commit to this Jesus thing. I could be showing up and going to the bar scene, have more fun in that place here in Pasadena. But all I do is get to show up at church and have this grape juice and crackers with this bunch of people. You know, we start thinking like that. It can become so extreme. I'll never forget when I was uh, living in Germany, uh, the ministry I was involved in had a uh, coffee shop and a tea shop right in the Raperbahn. Some of you may know about that. It may be the largest or one of the two largest red light districts in the world and certainly in Europe. And so many of the uh, sailors would come there off of the harbor and go there. And we put up this tea shop to call people to Jesus. One time a young guy was coming to be involved in uh, ministry there. And he actually said this. He said, you know, um, I wish I had come here before I became a Christian. That's an extreme example. But I'll tell you, I, I think that we can understand what's there. The difficulties of life right now make us look and think, it would have been better if I hadn't followed Jesus at all. We, we forget what it is that God rescued us from. Oh, we forget the difficulty and the purposelessness of life when God isn't at the center and we don't know that there is a direction for our lives. We, we forget about that. And as Marilyn said, it seems to me what's happening in this moment seems to trump everything. And we forget what God has done. We forget what he has promised. And we begin to grumble and complain. Point number two, question. Why should we not grumble? Because the Bible tells us we shouldn't. 1 Corinthians 10 says, don't grumble like those people did in the wilderness. <laughs> and Paul certainly knew that there were reasons why we might. But the real reason is, is that God is good. And God is worthy of our trust. And, and what happens is when we, you and I are following Jesus, and even through following Jesus, we find that God sometimes allows us to or even leads us through some very challenging times... We forget that he's still there and there's something he's going to do and we begin to grumble about it. And what we're really saying, often in an indirect way, but what we're really saying is we don't trust God. We don't trust him to be good. We think, I have a better way. If I had this, then my life would be better, Lord, than what you seem to be giving me. It's the same issue that Adam and Eve faced in Genesis chapter 3. God had given them everything. He had given them so much responsibility and opportunity to name all of the other creatures and to walk and talk with him. There was just one tree that they weren't to partake of. And they thought, we have a better way. We want all of this and that tree. And they disobeyed him. 
not trusting him, not trusting him to be good. Now, I said sometimes that complaining is indirectly against God because often we don't just go to God and say, now sometimes we do, but we often don't go to God and say, what are you doing here? Help me to understand. But instead we complain about somebody else. And repeatedly, and maybe this is why Moses put it so often in his book, they always kept complaining about Moses. Why did you bring us out here to die? Why did you lead us to this crazy desert and to this wilderness? And Moses just kept trying to say, but wait a minute, we're following the Lord. You see the, that cloud up there? You see that fire up there? We're it's the Lord who's leading us. Your complaint isn't really with me. But, but they still brought it. And, and I feel in this something that I think all of us have learned. Parents, you must have learned it too. It's this weight and burden of leadership. That where we seek the Lord, we may know what he'd have us to do and want to make sure that those places we lead are following the Lord. But sometimes when we do, we, we walk through a wilderness and the people, are, our families and our people are walking through a wilderness with us. And we have to know the weight of leadership is there are often complaints that come. But Moses is letting us know that so often the grumbles really aren't against the leaders. It's against, it's against God himself, who is the one who is controlling our lives. Now, Quick. There are two things I'm not saying. I want to mark them down. Two things I'm not saying. Let's be clear about them. Number one, the Bible never says that we should refrain from all valid and constructive criticism. So sometimes the leader will make a terrible decision, sometimes a very selfish decision, and in those situations, sometimes that will lead those that he is leading into a terrible place, and there is a place where we are to speak the truth as we see it. But that truth is to be spoken always with, what did Paul say in Ephesians? Always with, with love, with respect, and not just tearing down and being critical. Now, how can I tell the difference between constructive criticism and just negative tearing down of people? Sometimes it's hard to sort it out, isn't it? I think there, there are a couple of things I would say. You know it's constructive criticism, number one, when your deep longing is for the one who is the leader actually to thrive and to flourish and to do well. You see, so many times with our leaders, whether political or any kind of leaders, the criticism isn't constructive. We just don't like that person and we tear them down. When our longing, our deepest longing, is that that person will thrive in that role and we find ourselves praying for that, then we'll know it isn't just negativity, but it's constructively seeking God together. And the other thing that I think is a sure marker about whether it's constructive criticism or just negativity is that whenever we bring a criticism, we, it, it's brought always with a desire immediately to roll up our own sleeves and say, and I'll join with you. I'll be a part of this with you. We won't leave you alone. I think this is where we should go, but if, if we could do, I'll go with you. But the problem is... So often, when we just get irritated, we just want to tear down. So I just want you to know, I'm not talking about a real place, whether in our church or anywhere, for constructive criticism that longs for goodness to be pursued together. And the second thing I want to tell you that I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about that we should refrain from bringing our deepest cares and our deepest concerns and our deepest needs directly to the Lord. One of the things I love about being a follower of Jesus is that when, when you trust Jesus, he brings us into a real relationship with God, Abba, our Father. 
We can enter with confidence into the presence of a holy God in spite of the sins that have been in our lives. And we can tell him anything. And for me, a relationship always involves transparency. And when things are hard, one part of a genuine walk with God is that we go to him and tell him it's hard. The godliest people I've ever met have always had this very open, honest relationship with God in times of difficulty. And you can read about it again and again and again in the Bible. Just read the Psalms. There are times that it was so hard and the whole psalm came about because people just couldn't understand what God is doing and why He's doing what He's doing and they bring it to God. And they find that He is there. And if you don't believe me about that, just read through the book of uh, Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah 12 is one of the places. God, I know that everything that you do is good and so forth, but I just have one problem. I have a problem with your justice, he says. <laughs> oh, why are you letting this happen? I'm doing what you told me to do, and my own people are turning against me, and they're throwing me into prison and all. And I came back home, Jeremiah said, thinking that here at last I could have a little break from all this criticism. And I've heard all of my family members saying, let's get rid of him. He's an embarrassment to us as a family. Father, this is hard. Why I really got into that. And God turns, God turns back to him and says, Jeremiah, um, if you can't walk with men on foot, how are you going to make it when you have to run with the horses? Wait a minute, I said. That's a kick in the seat sort of thing. He says, it's been hard before. It's going to be harder still. But God keeps saying, I will be with you. You're going to see that, and I'm sufficient. So I'm, I'm saying to you, a part of knowing Jesus is this great privilege we have that when things are going tough and we don't understand, we can bring it directly to God. But that is a far thing from developing just a way of life that when tough times come, we just grumble and complain. When we do, we really are indicting God. We're saying he isn't good. We're saying he isn't wise. Or we're saying he's not sovereign over this situation. Or... We're just trying to use this thing as a way to manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. Now, parents, you all understand this, that sometimes our our children whine about, I want this, and we know that what they want isn't good for them, right? Just Halloween, they have big bags of candy. They want to eat it all one night. We know that isn't good for them or for us. So we say no, and yet they whine or wheedle, and finally sometimes we say, oh, all right, here, have all the things, and then we regret it. Well, God doesn't act that way, and sometimes our whining and groaning and complaining is to just try to manipulate God instead of learning to trust Him. So why should we not grumble? Because God is with us, He is good, and He is worthy of our trust. But we whine anyway, and he knows it. And so the third question, the shocking part, to see if I had enough time for the good part. I do. Um, why, is so God, good, why is God so good to us when we grumble? Why is God so good to us when he's rescued us and promised us and he gives himself to us? And the answer really is God will always be who he is. That's what the Bible keeps saying. Remember who I am. Look at chapter 16, verses 11 and 12. So the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites, so tell them. At twilight you will eat meat, 
And in the morning, you will be filled with bread. And then you will know what? That I am. That I am Jehovah, the Lord, your God. This is the answer he keeps giving all the way through this. I am with you and I am who I am. I am the God who who walked with Abraham when he didn't know me and eventually he did. I am the God who walked with Jacob when he was a deceiver, forgave him and used him in spite of that. I am the same powerful, personal and gracious God today. And so what did he do? They grumbled and complained and he gave them sweet water in chapter 15. They grumbled and complained about the, the varied diet that they wanted to have. Oh, we just had toast yesterday. We want cinnamon toast today. Chapter 16, he gave them quail and and manna. And then in chapter 17, they complained again. And he gave them abundant water. Now, once again, I'll, I'll talk to anybody who's a parent here. Do you think God is being overly extravagant here? irresponsible of a parent always giving in to the whining of these people who are there. If if God does this, this will just reinforce this kind of behavior. God should be spanking them for their complaining, not rewarding them. Anybody anybody want to vote that you think that way? Because remember, God's going to deal with you and me, me too, so we probably aren't going to vote that way. Well, I want you to know sometimes God did punish um, the children of Israel for their behavior. Just one of the times you can look at is Numbers chapter 11. They were grumbling again, and he answered their grumbles with fire instead of with bread. It seems to me that by that stage in their journey, God felt like these, his people, should have known better. They should, they should have known that he had provided countless times. But especially early on in their walk with him, he knew, he knew what was going on. And he blessed them. So why is it that God is so good to us in spite of us? Can I just give you three suggestions? My longing is that you will know something about God and remember it and hold on to this. And because I think the basic answer always is when we know who God is, then we begin to understand why he does things that perhaps we as human beings normally wouldn't do. Why is it that God is so good to us? Well, number one. I don't know. These are, I just what you, I apply these to myself, and I pray that they'll be helpful to you too. Number one, because God knows, He knows us, and He cares. He knows what's going on. He knows what we are like, and He cares about us. You remember early on in this Exodus study this summer. God heard the cries of his people, and in chapter 2, verse 25, it simply said he knew. That's all. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he had promised. He knew the situation of his people. He knew what he was going to do. He was going to preserve them as a people through whom Jesus would come. And eventually he knew that Revelation 21 and 22 will happen that there will be a day where there will be no lack of water and no lack of food, no war, no pain, no disease, no car accidents. He knew all that. God knows what's going on when we hurt. And then he also knows us and how much we can bear. Um, Sometimes the things they grumbled about were trivial things. And sometimes they were not. 
Exodus 15. Just you think about that. They just experienced this great rescue. They'd sung the great song. But they had gone three full days without water in a desert. That wouldn't have been easy, do you think? And so, you, you know, we want water, we want water. Moses says, I know this wilderness. There's an oasis right over there. And then they could see it. And they rush over, can't you imagine, to that oasis and said, oh, at last, water. And they take a drink and what a yuck, they say. It's bitter. It may not have been. Their palates probably weren't used to it. But I, all I want to say is it's hard. And God knows when it's hard for us. I've been thinking about this all yesterday and today with, uh, with John and Jessica Seacrest and with Hunter. I'm telling you, when our children hurt, it is hard. And it's just hard to say, oh, well, it's not a big deal. We dare not underestimate sometimes how difficult this life is. Now, these people should have brought that matter directly to God instead of complaining about everybody around them. They should have done that. Um, they would have heard God say, I still know what I'm doing. See, this subtitle of the series is called Practicing the Presence of God. So I just want to tell you that sometimes when you walk into a hard, hard place or a hard time and, and you say things and, and you bring them to God and you're upset, I just want you to know God knows. He knows you, how much you can handle, and he really does care. It will be a call to say to him, Lord, I don't see it, but I trust you. But I want you to know this about God. Second, I think we also need to know that there are things God wants to do in our lives. And he does his things both through adversity as well as through generosity. I just always wish sometimes I want the generosity piece, Lord, <laughs> instead of the uh, adversity. But the adversity is something that forces us to trust God. How, did, how do we put it? I had a whole series one summer in First Peter, which is all about this. Peter would say, what is adversity? What are the trials that we face? He said, they're fire. They're God's fire. Because when you have gold, that precious thing of gold, often gold will have something in there, the dross that's in there that keeps it from being pure. And so what does fire do? It helps purify it so that you can have that pure gold. And he says, you are my gold, God says. I love you. But, you know, when we come to him, you and I have a lot of dross inside. Amen? Look around you, all the dross around you inside all of us here. And God says, when I get done with you, you're not going to have that. And so sometimes what happens when, when trial comes is it almost feels as if there's nothing for, left for us except to hold on to God. Because everything else that we put into his place, that dross, is not going to last forever. And those things we often want in the present, those things right now, they're not the eternal thing. We have to learn to just cherish the eternal thing that cannot be taken away from us. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So sometimes God will send these times of adversity as he did to them. Because there's something he wants to do in us. To make it so that we know that he is our sufficiency. But then sometimes he will do his great work in us through generously giving to us. And uh, there are a couple of verses here that are just so uh, striking. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 16. Um, so Then the Lord said to Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven for you. But here's what the people have to do. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day, each day. And on 
that way, in this way, I will test them to see whether they will be able to keep my instructions. And then he gave a few other instructions about how they were to do it. I pulled back and thought about that. We're coming back to this text next week about the manna. And we're going to have communion next week. But right now, I just want you to see that God could have done this much more easily. He could have just said, just put a basket outside. I'm going to dump some food in there. I, I, even, I was thinking, maybe God could have even said, I'll tell you what, I'll just zap food right into their stomachs. So they wake up in the morning and, ah, oh, I'm satisfied. I'm glad he didn't because I like to taste stuff. And I'm sure you, you do as well. But God instituted what many people would say are just these trivial commands. They've got to go out and get it themselves. And they have to do it every day. And there's one day they don't do it. It's going to last for two days. And if they don't obey the way I do it, that stuff is going to rot. And everybody's going to find out that he has just enough for himself. All that he needs. Everyone. Why does he do that? Because I tell you, he is helping them to develop a way of life that learns to know him and to trust him day by day by day. Uh, they didn't know how to. They'd been in slavery all these years. They didn't know so much about the Lord. Now they'd come to know Him. And they needed to develop disciplines, a routine. Sometimes we say they seem to be so trivial, but I find sometimes the small things show more about us than the big things. When we have a really big issue, sometimes we can really rev ourselves up for it and we can get that one done. But in these small things, it learn, it's a way of learning to trust God every day. Uh, how did Jesus put it? Maybe you were thinking about this even now. Uh, the one who is faithful in the small things is one that I can trust with the big things. So I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, uh, sometimes when God seems to be far away and we learn to develop that daily routine of opening up this word and meeting God, that daily routine of praying and spending time with him, the weekly routine of getting up and saying, oh man, he's preaching about rumbling and I'd rather stay home and watch TV. But I'll go and see if there's any bread for me in that sermon. When we learn to do that, we learn to know that God is here. And we learn to trust him. Look at chapter 16, verse 35. Um, no, 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 I had the wrong one. Verses 33 and 34. Chapter 16. Moses then would tell Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord. And it's to be kept for the generations to come. And so they did it because he wanted them to know that though this was going to last for 40 years, he would get them there. And that brings about the third reason why um, I think we need to know that God blesses grumbling people. Because God will get his people to the promised land grumbling or not. He's going to get us. He loves us and he's going to get us where he wants us to be. And he'll give us what we need. So in this point, verses 33, 34, on to 35, there was one bit of that manna that was not supposed to be eaten up. It was to be put into a place and kept and held on to so that they would always know that God says, I'm going to get you there. You're going to grumble over and over and over again. And so sometimes... Uh, we grumble and God has to discipline us. Sometimes we're unfaithful and we have to wonder, will he provide enough? Don't we sometimes think about that as a church? 
But God keeps saying, I know the plans I have for you, and they're better than your own. And the work that I have started in you, I will bring it to completion. So don't expect that perfection to be among his people right now, though it someday will be. Uh, if they had said, you know, I don't want to travel with these people anymore. I'm going to try to find a more perfect people to travel with. God says, but these are my people. You travel with them. And for us, don't we sometimes think, I'm going to find a more perfect church for me to travel with. I'm going to complain about these people. But you know, if you do find a perfect church out there somewhere, it's not going to be perfect once you walk in it. Just, just write it down. We are all imperfect people that God has said, I'm going to give my son for you so that you can be forgiven. I'm going to give my spirit to you so that you'll have power to be different. And I'm going to give you one another. And sometimes you one another's, you're going to grumble and complain, but I'm not going to quit until my work is done. So in verse 35, the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to that land that was settled. And they ate manna until they got there to the border of Canaan. See, God had no illusions about their perfection when they were in the wilderness. He doesn't have any illusions about us, but he knows what he's going to do in us. He's going to conform us, each one of us and all of us, to the image of Christ. He's going to make each one of us and all of us complete in Christ. We are going to be people without any dross. So how do I want us to respond to this? Because I'm telling you, there are going to be hardships on our path of walking with God. For them, the desert was a tough place. When you leave here today, your life may have some challenges too. So here's what I'd like you to do. Will you pull out, if you can, the um, prayer uh, kneelers there in front of you? I want you to know God has given us what we need daily too to walk with him. He gave them manna. Jesus and John said, said, I am that manna. I am your bread, the bread of life. Even a better bread than they could have had. He is here with you. So here are the two things. As your head is bowed, your eyes are closed. First, will you take time to remember? Will you remember what God has done? Maybe it would be good in this moment to remember the time you first gave your life to Jesus. Just amazingly heard him say, your sins I know, but I will remember no more. God has rescued you. Remember it. Take a moment and remember any time in your life when God has been good to you. Oh, I pray that you can remember some. Remember that. And remember his promise to you. That even though you still may have areas in your life that you know you fail in those. Places where you put other things in God's place. The promise 
that he will complete his work in you. The certainty that whatever is happening now is something he will use to do great things in your life. Remember. And then I, I want you to engage right now in and what I call an intentional act of faith. Tell God that even though you don't understand what's happening, you trust Him. That you will seek to walk with Him and obey Him until you see more than you see now. When Chris and I lost our middle child, I remember reading John 14. I know what I'm doing. I'm doing it for you. Trust me. I know how hard this is. God is good. Tell him that you will trust him. So, Father, we have gathered here as your people. For us in this world, sometimes our eyes are so fixed on temporary present things that we almost wonder if you are there. We take this time, Father, to fix our eyes on you again. We know you are good. We know you are powerful. We know you love us. Father, we will trust you and seek to obey you until your work is done. In Jesus' name.